Texas Democrats fly the coop, and Donald Trump attempts a coop. It's a little deuce coop edition of the Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add Ike to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 370 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. President Biden was hearing it from both sides. Republicans in states around the country were passing measures that would restrict the right to vote, and progressives were frustrated that Democrats seemed unable to overcome Republican opposition to two voting rights bills that were stalled in the Senate. So on Tuesday... President Biden addressed the issue in a blistering speech in Philadelphia. The president reviewed the events of 2020 as well as what happened on January 6th and launched an emotional call to action, describing the efforts to obstruct voting and deny the results of the election as the biggest threat to American democracy since the Civil War. In America, if you lose, you accept the results. You follow the Constitution. You try again. You don't call facts fake and then try to bring down the American experiment just because you're unhappy. That's not statesmanship. That's not statesmanship. That's selfishness. That's not democracy. It's the denial of the right to vote. It suppresses. It subjugates. The denial of full and free and fair elections is the most un-American thing that any of us can imagine. The most undemocratic, the most unpatriotic, and sadly, not unprecedented. This isn't about Democrats or Republicans. It's literally about who we are as Americans. It's that basic. It's about the kind of country we want today. The kind of country we want for our children and grandchildren tomorrow. And quite frankly, the whole world is watching. There's an unfolding assault taking place in America today, an attempt to suppress and subvert the right to vote in fair and free elections, an assault on democracy, an assault on liberty, an assault on who we are who we are as Americans. Biden didn't offer many solutions to what was going on. He made no mention of the filibuster, the device Senate Republicans are using to block any consideration of voting rights bills. But he did mention what was going on in Texas, where Republicans are trying to pass a bill that would restrict voting access to an extent where the likely victims would be Democrats and voters of color. The reason Texas has been unable to complete the legislation is because House Democrats fled the state, preventing Republicans from obtaining a quorum needed to pass the bill into law. The escape from Texas to Washington, D.C. drew national headlines, but eventually they will have to return to Texas. And eventually there will be more special sessions of the legislature where Republicans will once again bring up the bill. As Governor Greg Abbott said, I can and I will 
continue to call special session after special session after special session all the way up until election next year. And so if these people want to be hanging out wherever they're hanging out on this taxpayer paid junket, they're going to have to be prepared to do it for well over a year. As soon as they come back in the state of Texas, they will be arrested. They will be cabined inside the Texas Capitol until they get their job done. So what was the point? For that, we turn to Abby Livingston. Abby has also escaped from Texas. She's the Washington bureau chief of the Texas Tribune. Abby, welcome back to The Political Junkie. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being on the program, and uh, what a week. But first, set up for us the sequence of events. I mean, Republicans who control everything in Texas were in the midst of this special legislative session designed to tighten voter access, voting access, and they certainly had the votes to pass whatever they wanted, but they couldn't do it. How come? Well, so just as a, as a um, reminder to your listeners, the Texas state government is, embraces a limited government strategy. And part of that is having the legislature meet every other year for a finite amount of time, which is generally January through the end of May. Um, and then if they run out of time, the governor can call a special session. And so what happened back at the end of May over Memorial Day weekend is the Democrats basically did the same thing. Then at very late at night, they quietly left the chamber and uh, broke quorum, which two thirds are needed to move bills. Um, so the governor said, OK, I will call a special session and we will do this again. And so um, and this is sort of the kind of move that a party does when they have no power. Democrats have done that before in Texas. And so on Monday, uh, kept it very tight, and they basically escaped out of the state and came to Washington, D.C., and landed in uh, the Democratic-controlled state of Virginia at Dulles Airport, and then made it into the District of Columbia, where they have been running all over the city, appearing on television, lobbying lawmakers, but we haven't seen any specific movement, and I think it will come down to the filibuster and, uh, you know, what happens with that, and I think it's, at this point, very unlikely something will happen changing the filibuster. But, you know, as I always say in the last five years, weirder things have happened in American politics. You know, the Democrats sounded very giddy, I guess, basically with what they accomplished. But but they have to know their victory is going to be short lived. I mean, you heard what Abbott said about more and more special sessions. Well, the Democratic response to his threat of that is they'll keep leaving and they seem very confident they're going to have the funding. It's not necessarily um, necessary for them to be in D.C. It's as long as they are not in the state of Texas, because if they go back home while the, se- the legislature is still in special session, the, the Republicans can send law- Texas state law enforcement to bring them back to the Capitol. That doesn't mean they're going to go to jail and get mugshots, but they will be compelled to come back to the Capitol to deal with the legislation. So they may be in D.C. this week. They may go to New Mexico or somewhere else. And so um, it's it's very uncertain, but each side is making threats and then escalating. And it, 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 the Republicans are furious, and they are throwing everything but the kitchen sink at the Democrats to get them to come back. Well, what are some of the things they could do? I mean, can they, you know, there's a lot of talk about what, what some kind of penalties. They can lose their parking permits. They can uh, dock their pay. And when they come back to Texas, which they eventually, I mean, they have families, they have jobs, right? They eventually will have to come back. When they come back, couldn't Abbott call an immediate special session and then have the Texas Rangers round them up and and bring them to Austin? Um, In theory, I guess it would have to depend on um, the Democratic plan. With regard to punishment, um, the most 
I think, effective piece of punishment that could be delivered is Governor Abbott has vetoed the legislative budget, which would cut off the salary of the staffers of these Democrats. And in Texas, the the legislators do not make much money. I don't want to be too specific, but I believe they make about $7,000 a year and then a per diem when they're in session. Um, But the state, and they tend to have careers outside of the legislature, but their staffs don't. And so the money for the staffs run out at the end of the month. And that's part of what the Republicans are trying to do to compel the Democrats to come back to the state. You got to come back to restore funding and then you will vote on the uh, voting rights or the voter, the changes to the voting bill. Um, And so, uh, but other forms of punishment, they're threatening to revoke their, uh, their per diem, the actual members per diem. Um, they've pulled uh, a leadership post from a, a, a Democrat. Democrats and Republicans have a coalition government on the House side. So um, they, they continue, Dem- Republicans continue to try to find new ways to get them to come home. But I do think that the most um, effective thing in getting them to eventually come home is a lot of these members didn't pack. They, some of them didn't have suits ready to go. You know, they've got careers, they've got families, um, they've got to deal with child care. So it is it is going to be a very strange summer in Texas politics. Who do you think the audience was for the Texas Democrats actions? Was it was it Congress? Was it the American people? What do you think? I think first and foremost, it's Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, the two senators who are the bulwark of the filibuster. Um, I think additionally, uh, these Texas legislators, I think part of the appeal of coming to Washington is there is a press corps inside of the city almost everywhere you turn in a way it's not in Austin and they can get on television. Um, they will tell you that part of what they're trying to do is summon the party nationally and trying to set a tone for other state legislators legislatures and states were controlled by Republicans of fight. The question of what is the end game, I don't know if there is one at this point, but I think that this is a party that is so beaten down, so defeated. They thought they had a real shot at recapturing the the state house chamber last November, and they fell very short of it, that this is just the only thing they have left, and they just want to fight this. And um, they seem to have the donor support uh, to continue this, at least for a while. Earlier, you know, I, I led off this program uh, by playing parts of uh, President Biden's speech uh, in his, his speech in Philadelphia. Do you think the speech made any difference either to the Republicans who are filibustering the voting rights legislation in Washington or the ones in Austin who are ready to pass their bill? I mean, as you say, short of ending the filibuster, and and of course that's up to Senators Manchin and Cinema. Short of ending the filibuster, I don't know what leverage Democrats have in Austin or Washington. Well, I, you know, honestly haven't heard the speech come up in conversation since it happened when I talked to sources. But what I can say just as an observer, um, it was the most fired up. I feel like I may have seen him Biden since he's taken office. I could be mistaken. and I might have missed a speech here or there, but he's had such a, a quiet, serious uh, disposition, specifically because of COVID and trying to lead the country out of that that I'd kind of forgotten Biden could, you know, be that way and be kind of lively. He was emotional, absolutely. Very emotional, right. So I think, I I don't know if there's any tangible consequence of that speech, but I did think it showed his heart is in it, whether or not he has much power to do, uh, to meet the wishes of uh, many of the rank-and-file Democrats. You know, I'm thinking in the end, the battle for control of the House uh, could be won or lost in Texas. Uh, the state gets two more congressional seats. Uh, the Republicans are going to draw the maps. 
uh, and it looks like it's going to be tougher to cast a vote, uh, assuming the legislature does pass its bill. Right now, I'm thinking the only thing that could save the Democrats is a is a strenuous get out the vote effort uh, for next year. I think there's that. I think Texas is strange because uh, Joe Biden has played there much better than past Democratic nominees, and Donald Trump has underperformed. And you know, Donald Trump's no longer president, but he's still a daily presence in the lives of Americans. And so I I don't know how it's going to go. What I can say is I think the central question, big picture, outside of the voting rights debate is um, when Republicans draw these maps in the fall, which would also happen in a special session, and who knows if that's going to get canceled. But um, when they draw the maps, do they take an approach of being super aggressive? We pick up two seats. Are they going to try and get as many Republican seats as possible in Texas? and be super aggressive, or are they going to be maybe somewhat less aggressive and build a map where incumbents can withstand potential demographic changes over the course of the decade? The suburbs are going toward the Democratic Party. Does this continue when Trump's not president? I don't know. And then there's the added uh, conundrum of South Texas, which uh, shifted toward President Trump, and does that trend continue? And so there are many unknowns in Texas, but what is clear is Democrats underperformed down ballot past Joe Biden. Biden had a good year in Texas last cycle. Um, And, uh, you know, where does Texas go from here? I don't know. You know, one thing that surprises me, um, I'm thinking of uh, Governor Abbott has certainly done everything he can to move Texas politics to the right. Uh, Voting restrictions, abortion, guns, uh, border security, censorship, you you name it. And yet I understand he's going to be hit with a primary challenge from the right next year. Explain that to me. He's got two challengers so far who um, have a demonstrated fundraising ability. There's a former state senator, Huffines, from Dallas, um, who actually lost his seat. So, uh, you know, it's it's unknown how viable he will be. But he's an ally of Rand Paul and in the libertarian streak of Texas politics. But more noteworthy is Alan West, a former congressman from Florida, who, after he lost that seat, moved to Texas um, and became state GOP chairman last summer. Um, and I think there's two things to note about Alan West. Number one, he is a he resigned his chairmanship to challenge the governor. And, you know, when I came up through politics and learning how things work, typically a governor chose the state chair. So it is just kind of wild to think about how decentralized politics are now when a chairman of a party takes on his own governor. And um, the other thing is Alan West was an incredible fundraiser when he was in the U.S. House. He's extremely com- uh, controversial. There are very few people who um, are uh, on the fence on Alan West. I think Abbott will probably be okay. He has a legendary field operation organization fundraising that has done much to save many down-ballot Republicans at the state ledge and at the congressional level, and Ted Cruz uh, a few years ago. And so I think the, the assumption is Abbott will be able to take care of himself, but boy, it's, it's a strange, it, things get stranger each day in Texas politics. And if he does survive the primary, does he face Beto O'Rourke? That is to be seen. Um, but I did a story a few weeks ago, and um, I, you know, no one claimed to have any insight into con- former Congressman O'Rourke's thinking, but basically every Texas Democrat I spoke with is operating under the assumption O'Rourke runs, and that is how they are organizing themselves right now, and that nomination is his to have if he wants it. Um, and I think he's demonstrating that he probably will run. He's going to those far-off pockets of the state that's very much like 2018. Abby Livingston is the Washington Bureau Chief for the Texas Tribune. You can find good stuff from her on Twitter at Texas Trib Abby, A-B-B-Y.
Abby, it was great having you on the program. Thanks for having me. Here I come to find you. Hurry up and run. Let's play a little game and have fun. Ding dong, where is it you've gone to? Do you think you've won? Our game of hide and seek has just begun. I hear your footsteps bumping loudly through the hallways. I can hear your sharp It's time to reveal the answer and winner of the last trivia question, which was, who was the last defeated president who later ran to regain his office? Now, I thought I was going to go with Herbert Hoover as the answer. That, that's, what I was, that's what I was thinking I was going to do. Clobbered by FDR in 1932, Hoover went to the 1936 and 1940 Republican conventions, clearly hoping for another chance at the White House. But he never officially declared his candidacy. He never actually ran. And of course, those two conventions didn't nominate him. So I'm going to accept the more obvious answer, Grover Cleveland, elected in 1884, defeated by Republican Benjamin Harrison in 1888, and came back to win the rubber match in 1892, the only time that has ever happened. And the randomly selected winner is Rose Hanover of Frankfort, Kentucky. Rose wins the coveted political junkie button. Don't forget, you can always find our political blogs, trivia questions, and the political junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. There have not been many politicians in history like Edwin Edwards, the former four-term governor of Louisiana, who died this week. And there probably won't be any more in the years to come. He was, in no special order, a charming, suave, rascally, thoroughly corrupt, roguish, larger-than-life personality who eventually went to prison for bribery and extortion. We had Edwards on The Political Junkie in November of 2014 to talk about his famous, his infamous, campaign for governor in 1991 against David Duke, the former Ku Klux Klansman and notorious anti-Semite, a race that captivated headlines nationwide. I'm replaying that interview now. Governor Edwards, welcome to The Political Junkie. Thank you, sir. I appreciate this opportunity. Well, before we get to the runoff, a lot of people thought your political career was finished after you were defeated for re-election in 1987. There were widespread allegations about corruption and deal-making. And then when Buddy Romer finished first in that election, you dropped out of the runoff saying you couldn't win. Did you ever think you were finished as a politician after that 1987 loss? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, when I conceded uh, and didn't agree to make the runoff, I said, look, the man fooled everybody. He had the editors and publishers of the newspapers convinced that he was some 
part of a do-gooder and would do all the things that they wanted done. But I'm telling you, he can't do what he's talking about doing. He doesn't know what he's doing. And in six months' time, you'll realize it. And I'll be back four years from now. And sure enough, four years hence, he was so unpopular, he couldn't even make the runoff to get in a runoff with somebody to save the seat. Basically, you called it. I mean, in 1991, you came back and you were blessed with two things. You had, as you say, a very unpopular governor and Buddy Romer. And then you had this runoff against David Duke. I would think that with any other opponent, maybe the issue would have been Edwin Edwards, but not against Romer and certainly not against Duke. He, well, I want to play a piece of tape here. Here's one of the questions a member of the debate panel, Norman Robinson, asked of Duke. Let's listen. Our next question comes from Mr. Robinson, and it is directed to Mr. Duke. Mr. Duke, uh, I have to tell you, I am a very concerned citizen. I am a journalist, but first and foremost, I am a concerned citizen. And as a, a minority who has heard you say some very excoriating and diabolical things about minorities, about blacks, about Jews, about Hispanics, I am scared, sir. I've heard you say that Jews deserve to be in the ash bin of history. I've heard you say that horses contributed more to the building of America than blacks did. Given that kind of past, sir, given that kind of diabolical, evil, vile mentality, Mr. Robinson, convince me, your question. Sir, convince me, sir, and other minorities like me, why they should entrust their lives and the lives of their children to you. Well, you, you don't often hear a debate question framed in such terms, and suddenly Edwin Edwards was no longer the issue. You were no longer the controversial candidate. Well, you're overlooking the fact that there was also a sitting governor in the race, and there was a sitting mayor in the race. And there were three other people in the race, including a member of the Public Service Commission. It wasn't just me versus one person. It was Edwin Edwards against seven people who were in the race. It so happened that Governor Roma, the sitting governor, didn't get enough votes to make the runoff. And David Duke, because he appealed to a very extreme right-wing constituency, managed to make the runoff. I didn't pick them. The voters picked him, just like the voters picked Edwin Edwards, in spite of what people said about him, because they knew I could do the job. You, you had this great line in the runoff comparing yourself with David Duke. Do you remember what that was? Well, yes. Uh, some, one of the panelists asked me, isn't there anything that uh, you and David Duke are like? And I said, well, the only thing I can tell you is we both wizards under the sheet. I mean, it's a, it's a classic line, and people have been repeating it for years. But aside from that witty and typical Edwin Edwards response, this was a national, nationally significant contest. I mean, yes, you mentioned all the candidates who were there in the original election, but in the runoff, there was a fear or there's a possibility out there that somebody like David Duke could win that thing. Not in Louisiana, sir. Maybe someplace else in America. But he will never have been elected governor of Louisiana. 
Okay, well, I mean, he ran close against Jay Bennett Johnston the year before. That I'm just saying that he did have a, a following. He did have a constituency, and a lot of people around the country were certainly looking at Louisiana to see if if, if what could happen there. But you know, I hate to say this, but anybody who runs the public office, particularly in the South, who wants to campaign against minorities and Jews and Hispanics is going to have a constituency because there are some fools out there who think that they're different from we are and that they ought to be cast into the dustbin of history, as he said. But that doesn't represent the thinking of the decent, honorable people in the state, and that is why he didn't come anywhere near winning the election. But you, but as a candidate, you supported African-American causes, black causes, causes, much earlier than many politicians in the South. You have to admit that. I mean, yes, as African-Americans grew into a, a potential voting block, you were backing these causes well before then. Well, yes, back in 1966, I was one of three Southern congressmen who voted for the extension of the Voting Rights Act, which gave minorities in Louisiana and most Southern states an opportunity to register and vote. Why? Because they were talking about black power and green power and gray power, but the power that is important is the voting power, because when people can put you in and take you out, you learn to respect them. And that's why I thought it was fair and appropriate that people of all colors and persuasions should be given the opportunity to vote, and I'm glad I did it. Well, you were supporting such causes way before other white politicians in the South started to do that. I want to play part of your closing statement uh, from your debate with David Duke. It's a little bit long, but it's worth a listen. Here it is. While David Duke was burning crosses and scaring people, I was building hospitals to heal them. When he was parading around in a Nazi uniform to intimidate our citizens, I was in a National Guard uniform bringing relief to flood and hurricane victims. When he was selling Nazi hate, literature as late as 1989 in his legislative office, I was providing free textbooks for the children of this state. When he was writing porno books, I was signing anti-pornographic legislation. I have been in this business for a long time. I have a record and he has a record. I suggest to you he's given us 20 years of hate and hurt and I don't think he's earned the right to ask you to be governor. Let him go back to our communities if, in fact, he has a newfound religion. And let him spend some time providing some healing and some help to overcome what he has done to us for all these years, given us this reputation in the nation and in the rest of the world. Then after he has done community service and served mankind with some help, then let him come back to us 20 years from now when he has matured and truly shown us that he is a different new person. Maybe at that time we'll think about letting him be governor of our state. But until then, don't let him divide us. Don't let him se separate us from the rest of the nation. Don't let him make a mockery of Louisiana. Governor, in that, in that election, in that runoff election, turnout was 77 percent. I mean, that's, that's unheard of in any state, let alone, uh, I mean, in any state. And yet 77 percent of the eligible voters turned out, obviously, your closing to your statement, what you stood for, touched the chord. Oh, I think so. I got a, a large number of favorable comments about it and much favorable response. And by the way, I want to say this publicly. Uh, when all that began to develop, 
I began to get contributions from Jewish people from Los Angeles to Philadelphia. I recall one time I suddenly began to get a, a flurry of checks, 15 20 30 $100 from Jewish community in Philadelphia. And I didn't know why until I was found out that in the Philadelphia newspaper there was an article about my race against David Duke, the Nazi. And then I realized that these Jewish people, fearful for their future, and not wanting to taint America's history with the likes of David Duke, decided in that small way and without being asked to contribute to my campaign. I never forgot it. And you had a huge black turnout as well. I mean, I think, I think when Buddy Romer was elected in 87, he did very well with African-American voters. But in 1991, everybody seemed to be in Edwin Edwards' corner. In the end, cream rises to the top. Well, okay. Uh, well, so so that race, and ultimately that race was not close. I mean, for all the national attention on it, uh, you won pretty handily. Yes, I won him sixty-three to thirty-seven. Your career has had its share of ups and downs since you left the governor's mansion. Um, to be fair, I mean, you served eight years in prison for racketeering. You served on, you starred in a reality show on A and E with your third wife Trina who happens to be a Republican, you married a Republican. That's pretty unusual. Anyway, and you also participated in the Ice Bucket Challenge. So, I mean, you've done a lot of things uh, since you were governor. And that brings us today. You're facing another runoff next month, this time for a seat in the House of Representatives. You were first elected to the House in 1964, 50 years ago. I mean, if, you're, if you win that runoff next month, I mean, you're going to go to a House of Representatives that you never would have recognized in 1964. Well, I will bring with me knowledge and experience and maturity. I'm old enough to know and young enough to go. You can get a very active man who has all of his faculties, with, but with the experience and know-how of years of public service, and I hope to put that to good use for the people of this district. Governor Edwards, thank you so much for spending time with us and reflecting back on that 1991 race. Thank you. Give my best, and everybody have a peaceful, holy, and pleasant holiday season. It's the time for it. That was my interview in 2014 with former Louisiana Governor Edwin Edwards, who died earlier this week. Tyler Bridges is a reporter with the Baton Rouge Advocate. For years, he wrote for the New Orleans Times-Picayune. And he's the author of many books about Louisiana politics, including The Rise and Fall of David Duke and Bad Bet on the Bayou, the rise and fall of gambling in Louisiana, and the fall of Governor Edwin Edwards. Tyler joins us now for his reaction to the passing of Edwards. You know, you know, you're, we always think that nobody lives forever and, you know, everybody's time on this planet is limited, but sometimes I thought that if anyone was indestructible, it was Edwin Edwards. Well, Ken, you're not alone. Uh, there, there are people who thought he would live forever, and in fact... Uh, you know, he went to prison when he was 75 years old, and there were people who thought he would not survive that prison sentence. In fact, when he got out of prison uh, at 83, uh, he showed remarkable uh, resilience, and and wherever he went in the state, people wanted a photograph. They wanted uh, to hear a joke from him. He, he was invited to all uh, sorts of groups, and he wrote uh, uh, an authorized biography, and it was a bestseller in Louisiana. I saw somewhere where it was said that he was the most dominant, certainly the most colorful politician in Louisiana since Huey Long. Tell us what Edwards meant to the state. 
you really sort of captured the, the state's ethos for a long time. Uh, you know, let the good times roll. Um, you know, the state's politics for a long time liked somebody who would be a little bit naughty, who would uh, give you a wink and a nod and do something that was maybe not too bad. Uh, and there was an authenticity about Edwin Edwards in the fact that he would admit to doing things that maybe other people wanted to do um, in terms of his gambling, uh, his womanizing, things like that. And uh, so he was extraordinarily popular for a long time and was the only man who ever served uh, four terms as governor of Louisiana. You know, I was just thinking of what you said. I mean, I find it f- astonishing, fascinating that that someone whose ethics were so questionable remains so fascinating to watch. And I get yeah, that little wink. Um, you know, if we were talking about a corrupt politician from Chicago or, or New Jersey or something like that, we'd want to lock him up and throw away the key. But there was just, there was something roguishly delicious. Uh, no, that can't be the way I want to describe it. But it's just something about Edwards that we've seen in very few, if any, other politicians. Yeah, it was that sort of lovable rogue, swashbuckling uh, rascal. Um, you know, he would be asked about his gambling and he to, to, to Las Vegas, and he'd say, "Yeah, I won a bunch of money, and you got to come out with me the next time I'm gonna I go out there." And he would and he would he would be asked about his womanizing, and he would crack jokes that had the whole room laughing. Um, you know, it's hard to be mad at somebody um, who makes you laugh. He also had that famous line about how he could, the only way he could be beaten. Yeah, he said the only way he could lose an election, this was in 1983, was with a, a dead girl or a live boy. And he beat an incumbent in that race 63, with 63% of the vote. Um, you know, in 1991, when he was running against David Duke, he said, we have something in common. We're both wizards under the sheets. Um, referring to David Duke's uh, Klan activities, uh, former Klan life. Yeah, yeah. Again, when when you when when you're able to to use humor like that, you're able to deflect um, bad feelings that people might have towards you. And uh, he was, in a lot of ways, almost like a stand-up comedian. He was just so quick, so funny, and he also had a brilliant political mind. But ultimately, there is the question of how much he used his incredible charm and and, and brilliance. Uh, for the benefit of the state of Louisiana or for his own pocketbook and his buddy's pocketbook. Well, it may not be or, it may be and, right? Maybe maybe both benefited. And they said the same thing about Huey Long, that uh, uh, he gave out free textbooks and paved roads and moved the state forward, but uh, there was a feeling that uh, Huey Long made a lot of money off his service in government and so did his good buddies. There was one thing certainly different about Edwards from other Southern politicians is that he was an early supporter of civil rights bills. Yeah, he voted for the 1965 um, uh, Voting Rights Act, and he was the first governor in Louisiana when he took office in 1972 for the first time to bring blacks and actually women, too, into government. And uh, uh, a lot of black uh, political leaders over the years owe their start in politics to Edwin Edwards. And uh, and uh, James Carville made a note to me the other day that you know he was a rare white politician in the 60s who never tried to use race as a wedge issue. He was in the House for like, six years before uh, he uh, won a 1971 governor's race and it may be forgotten, but he barely beat a state senator named Bennett Johnston that Edwin Edwards was able to cobble together this 
coalition of, of working class whites, um, particularly in the southern part of the state uh, and the region that he was from, uh, was called Acadiana, in a sense that these people who had been dispossessed, uh, who spoke, many of them spoke Cajun French, and he became seen as the first Cajun uh, governor of Louisiana. And of course, he brought blacks into that coalition as well and uh, was able to bring that coalition together and win four elections uh, as governor of Louisiana. You know, I'm very aware of the tone I'm taking. In as I'm listening to the two of us talk about this, it's it's almost like that uh, that rascal Edward Edwards, who uh, was a great womanizer. You know, the, the the things that people giggled at or smiled at years ago, obviously, is reprehensible today. But obviously, politics has changed, and I assume Louisiana has changed as well. Certainly, Louisiana has changed, and maybe it's hard for people to understand who don't live in the state. Um, the, the cartoonist for the, my newspaper, The Advocate, uh, when Evan Edwards died, um, did like a mock newspaper headline that called him both a scoundrel um, and a hero. And, and all sorts of people had very conflicted feelings about him. I was talking to a, a, a feminist, politically active woman yesterday, um, and she was saying how and I asked her about the womanizing, and she said, yeah, it, it, she, she really admired him, and, it's, and it's, she feels very conflicted that she feels that admiration, given the fact that uh, he was certainly very politically incorrect and, and womanizing. He had been out of office uh, at the time of his death for, I guess, more than 25 years. How do Louisianans remember him, if, if at all? Well, he enjoyed a comeback, uh, Ken, after he got out of prison in 2011, and he did travel the state. He ran for Congress, although he lost that race. So even younger people had a chance to be exposed to him and and to see his humor and be told by maybe their, the older folks of the good things he had done. Of course, um, there were many people who would talk about his, his being corrupt and uh, having his hand in the, in the till and going to prison for that as well. So uh, I, I think there are people who very, feel very passionate uh, about the good things he did. There are other people who have hated him over the years. And there's a lot of people who are very sort of conflicted because they, they see both the good and the bad. Well, the good and the bad, either way, it's uh, the end of an era, isn't it? Yeah, he's really one of a kind. Uh, it just uh, I feel very fortunate to have known him and, and jousted with him and, and uh and the, the, uh, uh, he made some jokes at my expense over the years, um, but I, it's sort of a badge of honor because he was just so unique. Tyler Bridges is a reporter with the Baton Rouge Advocate and the author of numerous books about Louisiana politics. Tyler, uh, thanks for being on the show. It's, um, it's, it's so hard to envision us talking about uh, Edwin Edwards in the past tense. Yeah, but I guess even with him, it was going to happen one day. Tyler, thanks so much. That's it for this week's show. 
Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. With this new variant of COVID, with more people getting sick and hospitalized, please, please get your vaccine. This, this is not about politics. It's about life and death. Please. I'll see you soon. I'm just a kid.